switch over to podcast mode. Obviously, that makes you want to do it more. That's like your open invitation. It's your ticket that you have to do it. If someone says it shouldn't be done or it can't be done. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Video Talks, where we talk to creators, movers and shakers in the worlds of video, film and marketing. And we look at how businesses can use video to their advantage. So what you heard at the beginning of this episode was a specially recorded intro to this show, and it was recorded by my guest today, Jeff Searle. So we'll be digging into his fascination with 3D audio later in the interview. If you're here for the first time, please hit subscribe, uh, and you can check out our site, videotalks.co, where all the show notes and links to any content will be. Okay, so let's get started. I'm thrilled today to introduce my guest, Jeff Searle. Jeff is a man of many exceptional talents. He's a director, an actor, magician, artist, and he's creator of the world's first and probably only one-man film. He's worked in advertising, feature films, and is currently developing an interconnected web of projects under the name Oracle Peak. Now he spends his time between his home studio in Hertfordshire, London, and LA. I first met Jeff at the Cannes Film Festival in 2007 when he was promoting his one-man film and I was doing a mobile film festival called Cannes in the Van. Uh, he's the most productive person I know and the busiest. I wanted to chat to Jeff about the methods in his madness and get under the skin of his multi-talented personality. Jeff, I've given our audience a brief overview of your life and work. Could you expand a little and just give us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? So I've been, so my career has involved me uh, being creatively making films, videos, um, content, images, be they drawn or on video and, um, uh, and putting them out in any way I can for various people um, and often for myself. Okay, so this podcast is called Video Talks. So could you give our audience an idea of how Moving Image is working for you and your projects? How Moving... Well, Moving Images um, are mostly what I do. And how they work for me is they... <laughs> uh, well, people maybe want... Um, some images that move. So I come along and create some images, make them move and give them to them. And this can be for many reasons, including um, advertising, 
art, artistic endeavors like for an artist might want a video image or a documentary or tv show or an animation and um have i just gone off on a weird tangent am i answering the question uh no that's cool that's perfect um i actually wanted to ask you what have been your biggest obstacles uh since you got started in video biggest obstacles biggest obstacles are um well i think one of my biggest obstacles is focus i like a lot of things i like a lot of things and um and i want them all to be done but everything can't be done so you have to focus on one of them and often i'll be working on a project as many people do with the fresh energy when you start out and it's like this is so great i want to keep going and then um uh, and then as you get into the harder trench of work uh, the, one of the other projects starts shouting at you saying, but what about me? I'm really cool too. And, and the one you're doing is getting a little bit draggy now. Come and work for me. So I go and work on another idea. And um, this can happen uh, multiple, multiple times. Um, so one thing that's important is to have accountability or a, a deadline that you stick to and focus. It's any way you can find focus in your own projects. Um, and there's other ways of doing that, but one of them is being accountable to someone else. So uh, one way I, I, I tackle that is by um, either agreeing to show someone something or, um, or having someone interested and saying, right, I'll have something for you next week. So I give myself a deadline and then I'm accountable to someone. That wasn't the best example, but there's many ways of doing that. So, um, yeah, I think... I think you've touched on something which is probably uh, for a lot of people, including a lot of creatives, uh, an incredibly important and essential point for completing any project or even getting through the kind of initial stages of any project. Um, I definitely suffer from lack of focus sometimes, even with this podcast. This has taken two years to come to fruition because I didn't have a deadline. What's an example of something that maybe you've um you've left on the shelf that that you may may have jumped from? Um well, well just before I answer that, uh, it's important to say that if there's a job, the deadlines aren't missed because you are accountable for someone. It's like it's it's mainly personal projects we're talking about here. And um and may I just also add that that isn't always a bad thing because it's a form of procrastination as well. And sometimes it can help improve a project that if you had rushed it through to fruition right away would be inferior to a fresh point of view that you get looking at the same thing at a later date which can actually improve a project. It all depends on many things. Sometimes you just need to get something done. Maybe you need to get something out and make some money. There's so many different fac factors and variables. But an example, because I didn't answer your question, could be a... Um, God, well, I have, I have a book here I, I'm just about to publish of examples of things that I haven't completed, but I haven't completed the book either and got it published. So um, what am I going to do? I can't give one example. There's too many, Andy. No worries. I, I completely relate. So accountability 
Um, and yes, when clients are involved, you have that deadline, you have that kind of, you have that essential um, end of the project life. And and it kind of belongs to the client after that, doesn't it? So I think there's probably something psychological there as well. But also just really quickly going back to a way of getting yourself to an end of a project is not forgetting what excited you about it in the first place. Sometimes you get that spark of excitement and that's something you've got to remember because that will fade for everyone. It's almost like a relationship. It's that sort of honeymoon stage. It's like everything's fresh and new. And then as soon as uh, you've um, spent some time with it, it's now becomes old for you and you either still love it or you need to move on. But if you remember that spark, you can stick with something to the end. Brilliant advice. Brilliant advice. Um, have you tasted failure along the way? Mm, so nice. It's delicious. Failure is is something that has happened a lot. In fact, when I was when I was a kid, and I know when I was thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up, I thought I wanted to be a failure, and I actually. My dream came true. Well, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> failure is something that is important, though, because you, you learn. It's important that you learn from your failures, but there's no, there's no shortcut to experience, as we know. So sometimes it's good to learn from other people's failures. As much, well, it's always good to learn as much as possible from other people's failures. But there's something you get from failing yourself that pushes you. Um, because I, I had many failures, and it's about pushing through them. Because I've done so many things, I just work non-stop my whole life, really. So um, it could the failure could be considered a project that was in development with a big studio or something, and then it falls through. But that's not so much a failure because that was that's something out of your control. So it's in, what I've learned is important to realize there's some things that are out of your control and factors that might not reflect on the quality of the project. It could be many things like the, the person that you pitched to didn't do a good job pitching to someone else. I mean, that could be a failure on your part because you didn't give them something clear enough to pitch, or it could be that they got fired or left their job and the new person comes in and is not interested in your project. I'm talking about maybe, you know, a feature film or, or, or animation project at a studio. Um, but other failures could be maybe I've let pride get in the way at some points. For instance, I've not chased enough things that have been, you know, maybe chased meetings and thought, well, they should call me if they're interested. And sometimes people need a nudge because they're looking at so many things. But back then it was like, I've given them my heart, this project that I've thrown everything at. If they're interested, they'll call me. I'm not going to call them. I have a, you know, and, 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 there's this little voice in the back and then they, they, maybe they don't call. Um, and maybe they would have been interested if you had just reminded them or pushed them in a way. I think, I think that's probably true um, for a lot of businesses as well who, who maybe don't do the follow-up calls. And when it comes to following up, also it's important not to be a pest, in my opinion. It's, it's a friendly follow-up and you know, it's all about being just using common sense, really. 
and just reminding someone. It's about staying in someone's mind because if someone's thinking, for instance, that I need to get a video made um, uh, and then you saw them many, many months ago, but another video maker saw them more recently, they might be fresh in their mind. So they think, oh, I'll get that person to do it. Whereas if you had just given them a friendly reminder, they'll now have a choice between you and the other person and think, oh, yeah, no, you were good. You seemed good. I'll, I'll choose you. So it's just about staying in the mind. Okay, so when did, when did your love of film and um, the whole creative process, I mean, I know that you don't just make films. I mean, you've, you've done so many things over your career. And as you said, now you're involved in audio. Um, what was the spark? Or can you, can you kind of pinpoint the spark that got you into wanting to do film? Everybody loves the story of the moment it became. I think it could be that my dad used to let me use his camera. And I used to, and I'm an only child, so I would be alone with this camera for pretty much my whole childhood. So I would be using that camera all the time and enjoy capturing things, be it small stop-motion animations or just other stuff. Also, theme parks obviously seeing films and going to the cinema, any entertainment, anything that was a story that, that brought an emotion onto me, if that was fear or happiness or made me cry or whatever. I think, um, I don't want to sound like I'm trying to be too deep here, but it is about emotion, really. You know, it's like that. I want, I liked these emotions, so I wanted to be able to make things around that. So when you when you were growing up, did you you were given this camera? Did you feel like, did you even know what director or what a filmmaker was at that point? I remember, so I was watching the TV, and there would be maybe a behind the scenes documentary came on, and it would be these big directors, Steven Spielberg, for instance, and directing his massive crew with these big lights and special effects, and it all seemed like it was just another world, a million miles away. It was like a dream factory. And I was like, wow, I got to be involved in that dream factory. But I need to make my own dreams as well. Uh, I was just in awe. There was an old show that I used to watch that was behind the scenes of special effects because visual and special effects have played an important role in my life as well. I've always been, because that is part of the fantasy um, so I had this book as well by Industrial Light and Magic, who's the that's the company set up by George Lucas, um, and they made the Star Wars and a lot of other big special effects movies back in the day. The Star Wars, I don't know why I called it that, but anyway, <laughs> sound nuts. But Industrial Light and Magic um, used to be a massive influence in my life as well because it just sounds well. It's got magic in the title for starters, um, and um, and I loved magic. And uh, you could visit places that you could only dream about visually. And just touching on the magic um, factor, did you get into magic around the same time you got into filmmaking? Yes, I got a, I got a magic set. God, this is, sounds like such a cliche story, but it's true. I got a magic set from my parents. And it had this hat and this little plastic chicken. Or was it a bird, a dove? I don't know. Whatever it was, it laid an egg and then the egg appeared and then you can make it disappear and all these little 
Amazing little tricks. Um, the fact that I could entertain my parents, they might have been faking the amazement, obviously. But the fact that, that I got that buzz from showing them these tricks, I thought, wow, this is, I'm, I'm creating entertainment. And so I, it was all about just, everything was a snowball from there, I think. And a learning, a, a learning curve, because I was still in awe for a long time about these Hollywood legends and the Hollywood way of doing it because back then there was less access to information so it was harder to find out how lots of it was done um, and I didn't have any access to any um, film any anyone in the film industry to find this out back then so it was about books and documentaries and they only showed you a limited amount of information whereas now it's much easier to find out how it's all done and the the show of the show business, the curtains are opened up to everyone now because back then it was a more mysterious beast. But now it's like uh, Joe down the road can, who's never used a camera in his life can make a feature film by going on YouTube and just figuring it out in a few weeks. Uh, maybe not, but you know what I mean. Well, yeah, that's true, but just rewind. Hey, is this working? Mic on. Hello. I'm here. Would you say maybe that curiosity in the kind of the behind the scenes and what was making this amazing stuff work? So the, you know, touching on the the VFX side of things and the magic. It's almost like that finding out that curiosity was part of the reason you got into it. Finding out maybe part of it, mostly the, the emotion, going back to the fact that I felt in, in, amazed at some of these things. Um, you know, just the artistry or the how much work went into it. It was, it was an awe. I was awestruck by these legends across Hollywood, across the world, actually, and these places you could visit in film. Visual effects is one thing. It's not all about the visual effects. I mean, it's just the whole, it's the storytelling. You touched on social media um, and how easy it is for somebody to make a feature. How has the industry changed? How's kind of film and I guess the media industry, visual media industry as a whole changed in the time that you've been working? Well, it has completely changed hasn't it um in in almost every element i can think of for instance equipment distribution budgets uh accessibility i mean for all of those things um we can get access to all the equipment to get pretty astounding production values i mean this is all obvious i'm sure everybody knows this already i feel feel like a hack repeating it because these are the obvious things to state, but it's just a fact, you know, now there's, uh, um, you can distribute things yourself via the internet, which you couldn't do uh, years and years ago. Um, you know, it's cut out the middleman. Uh, the budgets have come down because people get things cheaper. So it's harder to get paid more money because there's more choice for the client to choose someone else that's going to be cheaper. So it brings everyone's price down. But one thing that hasn't changed is the ability to tell a good story. That will always be a valuable asset. Um, um, the storytelling. It's just 
the way you do that and the way you distribute that has changed. Um, so you're doing a lot of work yourself um, on your own projects these days, but you did go through, through a period where you're doing a lot of client work. Mm. Um, did when you were doing the client work was did you see the change in the middle of that? I mean, when it comes to accessibility, I was making my one man film, which is in the past. I'm never going to mention again after this interview. You've dragged it out of the closet, Andy. Thank you. Uh, what was I saying? Uh, I didn't make my one man film. It was just before the accessibility, so it made it so much harder. And after I finished my film, I was like, if, I mean, it's silly to, ifs, what ifs should have, if only, pointless. But if only I'd had the, the 5D Mark II at the beginning of my film, it would have, and, and some other software and some other things that became available after my film. Because I've worked in so many fields of, of from directing to doing the, the visual effects or other stuff from adverts, etc. There's things I used to do on, on when editing in After Effects, not editing, but you know, creating an effect in After Effects that would take me many hours. Now there's plugins that will do the similar or same thing, or just the the updates on the software that does it in minutes, and the speeds of the computers and everything, and the storage and the drives. You know, I used to spend thousand pounds on this drive to store with a SCSI so you could get the data in and out quick enough to edit. Now you can just do it on a little flash drive that costs £20. So, you know, accessibility. I've seen that gradually and accelerate recently. So you, t you touched upon uh, your, your one-man film. I think people will be really interested in how the idea came about and what the production process was like of, uh, and and if you can kind of explain literally what the one man film is, um, because it is quite incredible that you managed to do all this stuff yourself. Right. Well, if I'm going to talk for one last time, hopefully in my life, about the one man film, I was working on a feature film that actually never got released because of many problems, but it was finished. And I was the production designer and it had a fair old budget and a massive crew of about 40 odd people. And a lot of people were standing around doing nothing a lot. And then I thought, and I'd been playing around and filming some stuff on the side and thought I could just do this on my own. <laughs> and you shouldn't, but it was a challenge. I mean, filmmaking is a collaborative process, but I thought I just, no one's done that. And then I told people on the set, and I was told it can't be done, or it shouldn't be done. And uh, obviously that makes you want to do it more. That's like your open invitation. It's basically, it's your ticket that you have to do it. If someone says it shouldn't be done, or it can't be done. And if you think there's something there, it's like, well, I now have to do that. So I immediately started writing the script. And part of the, part of the problem with my film is the fact that I wrote a I didn't spend a lot, enough time in development I mean I I am proud of it in many ways but it's a, f a fact just like many TV shows and films nowadays things are rushed through I rushed through the script to get something done to make 
that script did develop over the whole period of making the film because I didn't, it was, it was practically half a script. I mean, some scenes were just written as a sentence and then I would fill that out myself and other scenes were written in great detail. So I was told on this, uh, working on this feature film, can't make a one-man film. I then had to go and make this one-man feature film. If and if uh, we, if people don't know, you wanted me to explain that it's the world's first one-man feature film, never achieved before in the history of cinema. Anyway, um, uh, yes. So it's a film where everything is done by a single person, from the acting, the special effects, the camera work. It's a tricky task to execute for obvious reasons and um took me over the period of four years about two years worth of work because it was on and off i would go out and film scenes when opportunities arose as well some very unorthodox camera methods were implemented for instance the wind i would have <laughs> so i would have the camera very loose on the tripod and there was a, and I'd notice that the wind was blowing it because I hadn't tightened it enough to do a pan and I thought oh I'll use that so I, I got, <laughs> got that <laughs> this is true so I left the camera there and I thought the wind's going to start moving in a second and I'll run with it as soon as it blows and there it's moving right I'll run with it so I got a bit of a pan in that shot now I could just use one of these tracking motorized heads that does everything god if I could make it now save me so much time drones follow me around. I could have all that. I could increase the production value tenfold. I mean, I did actually start filming on 16 millimeter and a few of the shots are on 16 and uh, that was just not practical. The rest of it was on a digital PD-170 camera that I was using for my work as well at that point. I was making a documentary. Sorry, I'm racking my distant the distant past in my brain and it's coming out all disjointed. Is it making sense, Andy? It is making sense. There was I remember one scene particularly where you're running away from an exploding house or exploding Oh yes. Oh that's a composite. So what I did I actually made a making of video for that. I might have taken it offline because I'm trying to destroy all record of that film. But if it is there somewhere still I yeah recorded two shots, one with just the explosion and one with just me running out the shack and uh, composited them together to look like I'm, as is actually done in many films nowadays. Uh, I just did it on my own. In fact, that's easier because it's got to be locked off or is often, doesn't have to be, to be honest, but it's easier for the visual effects process if it's locked off. So many hours just masking things in After Effects, if you know what that means. It's cutting things out. And um, so many hours just doing mind-numbingly boring tasks. You've <laughs> brought back the most fondest memories, Andy. <laughs> and I thank you. So it took four years from kind of the original concept. It was, as I said, on and off. So, you know, I was filming for a lot and then I had a long break while I was doing a job to make some money. And I had a screening, a test screening, and I, and I had my premiere. In, Les in Leicester Square, wasn't it? Leicester Square premiere. Had a screening at Camp Film Festival as well. In the market, that was a disaster. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? Why is that a disaster? And is that why one of the reasons you don't like Cam? 
No, what, one of the uh, there was a there was a loose wall and a lantern and it fell down on the audience. I got sued by <laughs> seven people, and um, that was the budget of my film. Just the lawsuits of that. I put that in the. I'm kidding. I'm rewriting. None of that was true. I made it up. Okay, um, don't do that. But I did have a screening at Cannes, and it was. I had it was in the morning because that the only slot I could afford in the market, and it was. Um, I think ten people turned up. I mean, it was only a. 15 seat theatre to be honest but it was so exciting back then though everything was much more exciting I think that I think this is something to learn something I learned because the, the one man film I it was a firstly it was a learning curve for me because I was learning in detail at least a, a, I was learning a bit of almost every aspect of filmmaking forcing myself to because I had to do it Talking about procrastination, I could have done that film in a lot less time. I could have done it in a year, probably, if I planned and done it, or, or even less than that, because um, a lot of it, there was a lot of procrastination involved as well, and trying to motivate yourself on your own. And back then, I was so super excited about that film and, and showing things. It's just choosing what you show and how you show it as well is super important because I look at lots of this old work and I think that is, I just want to, I can't, I can't even look at it. And it's so bad. I mean, to me, and that some of that gets trapped on the internet and will never get taken down. And if someone's searching you and they find that first, that could be the impression they get. I'm talking if you're looking for clients or whatever, or even if you're just trying to get an actor involved in a film. So maybe you've done some smaller projects and student stuff, and then you've, you you now want to make a, a film and you've got a, an actor interested, could be a, a great actor, and then they look you up and see this awful piece that you made and it puts them off. I don't know, I'm just giving a random example that I just thought of, but Alfred Hitchcock and, and these, these, these film legends, they must have, well, they would have made some pretty bad stuff when they started out as experiments. But it never gets seen. It gets deleted. Maybe it's just on a home 16mm movie camera and got destroyed because they were sensible enough or they just hated it. or sensible enough to know no one should see this. So my point was, that's a problem that directors never used to have. Filmmaking content, all of it can be documented and trapped online. So be careful and curate what you put up. And what I've... Sorry, what I have learned is that your taste, not your taste, your, your ability to see how good something is, is also a developing process because some things I thought looked really good a long, long time ago, you look at them again and you realize they're not as good as you thought they were. But at the time you thought they were amazing. And that's, that, that feels like it's a bit about growth and the growth of your perspective on your own work and and standards um, of your work, I guess. Yeah, standards. It's like, yeah, that's to do with, it is, is growth and standards and everyone goes through that. When you come up with an idea, but sometimes the first idea is obviously the same idea, the first idea that everyone else would have had. And it's probably cliche, even though it doesn't feel like it, maybe. Um, because it's your first idea and it feels fresh and new to you but it's not trust me you need to have a second thought of how can i make this better or is this different enough there's an organic process and sometimes budgets and time restraints make it really hard to do that often in tv and film now 
but as much as possible, think about and let that idea develop and try and give it some space and look at it with fresh eyes, whatever it is. So, Jeff, you spend a lot of time in LA. Um, what's the particular pull of California to you? Probably at its root, because there's a lot of fun things there. When you're in Hollywood, it, there's a magic that because of the light, the pollution creates this beautiful light. It's this golden sort of just hazy atmosphere often that just looks good in photos. Pollution is bad for your health, but great for photos. I mean, if there's a forest fire, <laughs> that, that horrendous smoke drifting across the sky gives the most amazing, soft, beautiful light. <laughs> that is a great quote. Yeah. Well, I, I love animals. So going to places like the big national parks and state parks in California are healing. I don't want to sound too sort of out there as well, but they are healing. It's like, I don't really relax much. And going into those places with a camera and filming stuff is often, it definitely is a, one of the few times I feel relaxed because I'm stuck there. Well, you're not stuck, but you know, I mean, you go out and you're in the middle of nowhere and I'm filming. So I'm doing, because I have this bug to film and work all the time. Filming is actually often relaxing for me, full stop, um, if, if it's going well, if it's something that's not on a deadline. So if I'm on a holiday, I'm a nightmare because I just want to film everything or do stuff that is feeding into my work and my projects. So if I'm going up into the national parks, I can get this amazing footage and I'm like, wow, everything, you're just turning every corner, the lighting, it just looks gorgeous. And uh, um, that's a massive draw for me, which is why I'm writing a, or I've written a feature film and a selection of satellite projects around that film set in Northern California. So what, what is that project and what are these kind of satellite projects around it? So th that's, the Hero Project is a feature film um, called Oracle Peak, set in this uh, little known state park in Northern California that completely vanished. It was America's most weirdest wonderland. Weirdest wilderness, I should say, where uh, there was the most UFO sightings, the most Bigfoot sightings, all this sort of tomfoolery. It's still in its early stages. I mean, I have the finished script on its like third draft, which I am so excited about. I can't, I have a problem. If I'm not really excited about something, I have to try and fake it. And that's so hard for me to do that it's almost impossible but this is i'm like you have no idea i'm like so excited about this movie the script i've just i feel like there's so much in there and oracle peak as a place really interests me and as i think i mentioned before i love mystery so mystery it's a thriller a mystery thriller the movie and it's going to be quite surreal and quirky along with all of these other small projects that go around it, including um, an art show, a comic book, a sort of Twilight Zone-esque short stories set in this park um, around experiences from the Rangers, and a whole bunch of other exciting transmedia projects in that they span every 
form of storytelling that I've been brainstorming from audio to comics and audio linked together. Um, new ways of using audio that have not been done or not been tapped into enough. Because uh, one thing I always feel I have to do is at least try and innovate in some way, better myself, do something that's not been seen before. I cannot stand doing something. And even though I might have done it, but it makes me feel sick if I feel like, ugh, this is just like something that's been done in any way. So you talk about innovation there and you like to always try to, to work on something that's innovating. You've worked with clients in the past, you've done advertising, etc. So the kind of landscape obviously is constantly changing. Social media, video, 5G is going to make things or is already making things, you know, more things possible. What are some of the things that brands can do with video effectively? Um, there's potential for video in almost any area if you try and use your imagination and think how that can be used. So I'm a small business that is, uh, I've started, we've been going a year um, and we produce uh, paddle boards um, and we're looking at growing our paddleboard um, market. I live in Brighton. All right, so that's so where you stand on the I'm surfboard. thinking about paddleboards. Yeah, um, and we're, and we're going to be international in three years Good and on. we're going to be the biggest paddleboard retailer in be that's incredible world. that's a pretty big paddleboard it's pretty good what can i do well video is something that is vital especially to to get international people need to sorry this sounds this sounds crap right so <laughs> you're going to cut that first section out video is something you need to do because you got to like uh, you know get international with the video no, um, <laughs> just get it going, international-like, you know what I mean? Um, so uh, so the obvious is you've got everything from your, your social media where you would, you know, start pushing videos out that could be... It's, uh, and every video that you make for your paddleboard company needs to be... needs to stand out, be different, needs to feel like it's something that... It needs to grab people's attention and it needs to grab their emotions because like I was saying at the beginning with feature films, you've got to get, a, you've got to get an emotion out of someone when you make a video. Um, and whether that emotion is comedy or, um, or fear or excitement or whatever it is, if you get someone to feel that, they're going to more likely to remember you. Um, and it's about taking something that's relatable as well. It can't be too out there. It's got if you take an event that someone's or homage to something that people recognise, and then you twist it and make your own. First of all, you need strong branding. Sorry, as in like if you have a strong brand guideline, and make sure that the videos can fit in within that. That goes without saying, but but it's it's important because. You could just alienate an audience if it goes in the wrong direction. Um, if we're talking about branding, how do you connect video to that strong branding? Well, first of all, it's understanding what people that buy your product want, product want and want to see and what they like and what they enjoy and giving a video that appeals to that sort of individual. Um, and often when you give a bad idea, I mean, the thing about brainstorming is you go through the rubbish ideas, but you might 
and it's important to listen to people's brainstorms. If someone gives feedback for an idea or gives some ideas, even if that idea in, in your mind you think, oh God, that's rubbish. Nothing is rubbish because it could trigger just one element of that idea. This, For example, that idea is really bad. One element could be the nugget that inspires a really good idea. So never shoot down anyone's ideas and just let your ideas flow. Um, if you're a, a paddleboard company, well, people like maybe keeping fit. So it could be saying it's related, a video, maybe it could be a series of ways to keep fit on your paddleboard videos. So it could be a little mini series that goes on YouTube and social media or Instagram stories. Um, that is how to, um, or, or technique, could be a technique training video but it's all within your brand guidelines. So it helps you um, promote your brand to that person. And so they, if that video feels like your brand, they will associate your brand with that product. So if they get something good out of it, they'll rather go to you. It's about getting in their minds. It's getting in someone's mind as they have to use you or they remember you when they're thinking of paddleboard. And that comes with strong branding and also... Um, just exposure to your your name very quickly the scrub forward round is like a quick fire round oh do I if win you don't want to answer just say scrub so uh video nasty what's the worst habit you see people practice in filmmaking or animation uh, but, but biting the nails did you mean Seriously? habit like proper habit not really. Sorry. Not like a not like a personal advice. Oh, but oh not hygienic. Okay. Uh, uh, a quick fire. Uh, worst habit. Um, I it depends on what definition of worst is. Uh, mediocre. Just making things that not thinking things. That's not a good example. Go on, Bennett. Can I scrub this? I'm really dirty. You 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 can scrub this. Okay. Okay. VR, AR, or mixed R. Oh, mixed. What techniques and software? Um, well, um, uh, developing new techniques in any software you can get your hands on, but I love After Effects and just it playing. The most important thing is play because then you come up with new stuff. If you have a cool idea, uh, the problem with most people is you don't have the time, but if you can find the time or just have like even an hour set aside each week just to play around and think, well, how could I use this? If you have an idea, I mean, write an ideas book down so you don't forget them and then try it out sometime. Okay, stop, pause, play. One thing you always do, one thing you sometimes do, and one thing you should never do. I always have far too many ideas and it's very, very, very uh, overwhelming sometimes. Um, uh, you need to sometimes just, uh, no, that's not sometimes, always, always just do um, less. <laughs> <laughs> less is good. Always, always do less. Okay, one thing you sometimes do. Um during the creative process. During the creative process, I sometimes eat lots. Sorry, I'll come back to that again, but it's true. I'm like, mm, oh, I've got more ideas. Oh, just eat your ideas in there. Don't do that. Right. Okay. And one thing you should never do. Never shoot down. Oh, sometimes. So always listen to feedback. It's like criticism. We're going to just re re rewind, stop and play. I'm going to rewind for you. Rewind. Listen to the feedback because... Uh, Bad feedback. One thing I actually enjoy, and people find it really hard, but is just listen more. And don't. And if someone says something's not good, maybe they've said it for a reason. No one wants to say something like that to you unless they're 
your enemy, probably. They're saying it to help you. So don't take things personally. I think everyone often wants you to succeed. I'm being very general here. It doesn't apply to everything. But if it's someone that you you trust, asking for feedback, just listen to it. And they might be wrong, but just absorb it. Sometimes um, they might be right and you might be wrong. So, um, you know, get some perspective and stand back and, and think about what they said at a later date. Um, but trust in your own opinion as well, obviously. And what was the last one? Play. One thing you should never do. I'm trying to think of something never to do. That's something I don't... Never say anything. Don't say stuff behind people's backs. Okay, give us one secret animation tip. Secret animation tip? Oh, wow. Um, experiment with f- frame rates and um, save yourself uh, a lot of time animating. You don't need to animate every single frame. I mean, if you're starting out, maybe you'll have the urge... Maybe not if you've been playing around smartly, but try a lower frame rate. Something's going to look really cool, more artistic and aesthetically pleasing if it's at a you know, 11 frames a second or 15 frames a second or something instead of your full speed. Brilliant. So, Jeff, um, you're working on audio at the moment. What's what's next for you in that direction? And what's your kind of vision for the future of what you're doing? My vision for the audio, which can't be seen, except in your own mind, which is part of what this is about, because I'm doing this incredibly exciting 3D audio project at the moment, which I can't talk that much about, some of it. But I can, the tell three, you, can you explain what 3D audio, the concept of that is? Well, 3D audio is, a, is, a, is also called binaural audio. It's where we hear in three dimensions. So if you listen to a normal stereo sound on your headphones from a normal stereo sound source, everything feels a little bit flat. It can be in the left and right ear, but it's never three dimensional. Like if you're listening in real life, if you click your fingers around your head, you can hear with your eyes closed where that's coming from. Almost like you can reach out and touch it. That is dimensional, three, three dimensional. So when you're listening to audio recorded in a special way where the sound hits each ear at the correct microsecond difference to trick the brain into reading that three dimension, you can, with with some nice headphones, almost feel like it's real. With your eyes closed, you could hear someone standing next to you talking to you. You could reach out and almost touch them, but they're not there. It's just the sound. And there's many different ways of... I just This is so much potential to stretch in new areas that have not been explored. I'm, I'm partly doing it because it excites me. When I experience it, I just want to hear more. And that is a winner for me. If I'm really excited about something like this, and the few the few people that have listened to samples are also excited, including a kid that I got these most amazing reactions out of, as in they were, they it was all, they thought it was real. And it can be done in real field recording with a special binaural head microphone, or it can be recreated digitally by software. So you're starting a company, 3D audio company, you're creating a world for a Californian set uh, film uh, with satellite projects around that. Which is the 3D audio is related. 
the initial projects for the 3D audio are related to my feature film, but it's expanding in other areas as well. But it's a great place to test out stories, partly because of the low production costs in comparison to making a feature film. To produce an audio 3D drama where the audio is so real and mixed like a feature film with your eyes closed, it's like you can watch the movie in your head because you can almost see where they are because you can hear in the space around you. So it's not like listening to an audio book. It's like you're in the movie. Sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. It really does. And it kind of, it really complements everything that you, you were originally saying about the kind of the magic of, of experiencing, you know, cinema and those cuts, those stories and those VFX and the, I guess everything that, that is involved in creating that kind of that emotive reaction. Um, amazing. Brilliant. So how do people connect with you? Well, I'm quite reclusive. So don't connect. Yeah. But where can, they, where can they follow or find you? Unless it's Connect 4. I love that game. If anyone wants to play that, just buzz me on my Instagram. Which, which is... Which is? Um, it's just my name, Jeff Searle. So it's at Jeff Searle, G-E-O-F-F. Searle, not surreal. I get often mistaken for that one. S-E-A-R-L-E, at Jeff Searle. Cool. Brilliant. Is there anything else you want to kind of plug or talk about? I just want to plug people to be upbeat and and look for the funny. Because comedy, that's that's the big thing in my life as well, which I haven't mentioned much at all. No, you haven't. I want to plug humour is super important in everything. Don't take yourself too seriously. Oh, I like that. I'm only plugging some good advice. That's good. Uh, so thanks. Jeff, for a brilliant conversation. Um, you liar. You're lying. If, if you want to hear more about what Jeff's up to, uh, if you can find him, maybe have a look on, have a look at, on uh, his Instagram at Jeff Sell and look out for Oracle Peak because it's coming your way. That sounds scary. It is a thriller. A massive thanks goes to Jeff Sell for that interview. I always enjoy chatting to Jeff. He's always full of wisdom, advice, and just crazy new ideas. Um, so good luck to him uh, with his 3D audio project in Oracle Peak. So if you'd like to hear more episodes coming up from different movers and shakers in video, Please hit subscribe if you haven't done so already. Um, you can also check out the show notes on videotalks.co where you'll also find links to my other podcast, which is called Square One, which is S-C-W-A-I-R. And that is a podcast about starting from scratch. So talking to business leaders, innovators and entrepreneurs about their journeys and filling in the gaps with tips and tricks from my own discoveries along the way. So thanks for joining me for this episode. Take care and I'll see you on the next one. Cheers. Cheers.